Hi, I'm Dubbo, I'm Director of Music Tech Fest, and this is the MTF Podcast. This one's a really special one. It's an extended interview with one of the legendary pioneers of electronic music. Graham Massey is a multi-instrumentalist, producer, DJ, and broadcaster. Chances are you've heard his music. As well as being a central figure in 808 State, who are one of the most influential acts in electronic dance music history, Graham's remix and production list is an absolute who's who of contemporary music, including his work with Bjork, co-writing Army of Me and The Modern Things from the album Post. He also has numerous side projects and collaborations, including Sisters of Transistors and Toolshed. While 808 State were responsible for the first full-length album of dance music and were early pioneers of Acid House, Graham's taste extends far beyond. With influences and interests ranging from Hawaiian ukulele to Sun Ra, his solo endeavours are filled with surprise and complexity while still being perfectly at home on the dance floor and, of course, at MTF. As an avid collector of both unusual and vintage music technology and a regular face at Music Tech Fest events around the world, Graham is interested in the intersections of innovation and creativity where the unusual or unexpected can happen. There's lots to talk about and there's so much more we could have discussed. It's an absolute privilege to welcome Graham Massey to the MTF podcast. Enjoy. Graham, you're a pioneer of electronic music tech. First, how does that label sit with you um hilariously because like i'm not i'm not that techy when it comes down to it um i've managed to bumble my way through with music tech but i would say that because i'd come from uh the punk era was really important to me you know so that's that's where i came into music where it was about um there was a chaos to it and and there, w- there was no formal training in terms of my musicianship I was obsessed with sound and uh, it was a period when the non-musician was a character in music you know uh, people like Brian Eno uh, came to the fore in, in in my teenage years where you didn't hear a formalism in his kind of music. And you're just thinking like there was a mystery in what those people were doing. And I was very attracted to that. So when I first joined a band, I, I, my instrument was electric violin and I had no training in violin. So it was about making a noise with this thing. But during, during punk, you could do that thing. You were encouraged to play the instrument you could play least. You know, so people would swap instruments regularly And uh, it was all just about um, the joy of noise for a while. We had a DIY band called Danny and the Dressmakers. And we simply just used to get in a basement uh, with a blank C90 and fill that C90 up. That was the important thing about it. It was not anything to do with songwriting. It was not anything to do with skill. It was just this exploration of noise and sound uh, that was truly uh, liberating uh, and at that time had some traction in the culture. But electric violin is not typically thought of as a, as a punk instrument. No, but, you know, I, I, I don't know why I'd got that instrument other than the fact that, you know, I, had a, I used to listen to Mahavishnu Orchestra and things like that that had 
the idea of an electric violin just seemed really exciting, and I just bought one uh, on a, from a small ads, and it, it it was like a passport into a band because everyone had guitarists, everyone had drummers, no one had an electric violin player. Apart from the band I joined, actually, that did have an electric violin player who was really good, who I actually still play with these days, a guy called Graham Clark, who um, uh, is an amazing jazz violinist. Um, But at that time, we were into space rock and making kind of all kinds of um, outer world sounds. You know, we'd grown up in the Pink Floyd era. We'd grown up with bands like Gong, Faust, you know, the ver- early Virgin Records was such an important part of British music culture. You know, when Virgin Records, uh, the label started and their eclecticism and Europe facing view, uh, you know, a lot of German bands, a lot of French bands. It's an interesting mixture of music that we were exposed to through our local record shop, which was the Virgin Record Shop, again, a very grassroots um, mail order system that started out as. Uh, it was a, a gathering place for the punk community of Manchester. They, they had three listening booths in there, you know, with the headphones. And uh, there was usually about 30 people in the three listening booths. You know, it was a, uh, a place uh, for exchanging ideas, um, a, a guy who was in our band, his auntie managed that shop, so he had a Saturday job, a guy called Colin Seddon, and he used to bring home the, all this fantastic music that was coming through that shop from America, you know, first hearing, you know, bands like The Residents and uh, Devo and um, some of the um, more outre stuff of the punk movement. You know, we got sick of the three-chord thrash, got really boring to us really quickly. You know, it always sounded like pub rock, a lot of your traditional punk. But once, you, uh, like, the New York thing was filtering through into Manchester, and we very much um, um, sided with that. There was bands in Manchester, like a certain ratio, for instance, that were very on par with that. You know, they were taking sort of funk and dance elements alongside electronics uh, and uh, a deliberate lack of skill. You know, people would always play the trumpet in these bands. You always had to have somebody that couldn't play the trumpet playing the trumpet in a post in a post punk band. You know, Throbbing Gristle has it, 23 Skidoo has it, Cabaret Voltaire has it, you know. And, and uh, we had a trumpet amongst the two bands that shared our rehearsal room and we used to pass it round and you know it was uh these non non-instrumental players playing instruments was part of that scene so long as you had enough processing and that that was a point when also about um post-punk is it became a very much a studio craft uh thing you know you could get in a room and, and make this music but it really came to life when you got in a studio and could um, apply the latest digital effects that were coming in at the end of the 70s into the 80s. Um, a lot of uh, new studio technology that that, that um, was exciting and new at, at that point in time. You know, So I, I, I re- if we ever got in a studio and, and everything came to life, um, I'd, I couldn't wait to get back in the studio. So at a certain point, I'd, 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 when the studio we used to use took 
took on the shape of a school called the School of Sound Recording in Manchester. It was one of the first recording courses in the country. Um, I signed up to that in, in uh, the mid-80s and uh, it was the best thing I ever did. And, and that intersected with the time when Atari computers and samplers were first coming in. Uh, so um, to have access to um, that, that equipment at that point in time. Um, essentially, before then, it was all millionaires' toys and you, you could never even have the ambition of getting near that equipment. And, and, then, and then all of a sudden, the, the uh, price point was different. And uh, it all existed. Uh, uh, you, you had access to it at a certain point in time. And that was, uh, you know, us kind of unruly, chaotic people getting hold of that equipment was definitely different to the millionaires that had previously done the pioneering work with it. Right, right. But that's that sort of explains the time and how it sort of came about, but it doesn't explain necessarily why it was you. What, tell, tell me about the, the child, Graham Massey, and, and what were your parents like and what was growing up that, that led you to the kid who bought the electric violin? Um, well, um, growing up in the 1970s, it was a very fertile time in music. You know, um, I had older brothers that were at university uh, coming in with their prog rock. Uh, we had a, you know, a musical community in the street uh, where I grew up, where um, there was a couple of really good stereos. One guy had built his own stereo, was very proud of it, you know. So we'd gather around that stereo with this week's hot releases, as it were. And they could be seven inches or they could be important albums. I remember gathering around when a, a Bowie album came out, it was a, you know an event where people would gather together to listen to it, you know, which is, which is odd for a street, really. I don't know whether that's uh, um, just a personal experience or whether that was going on up and down the country. But, you know, uh, it's hard to explain. Somebody was doing um, a documentary recently on Lindsay Kemp and I was interviewed about the importance of Bowie in that 70s period in, in the UK. Uh, so you would go to school and, and like there'd be people with carrot red Aladdin insane hairdos and school uniforms on, you, you know, this, the non-conformist sort of, but with the last vestiges of conforming, you know, this odd hybrid of, uh, you know, to be a non-conformist in the 70s was really hard. Only the tough kids did it, you know, so those who became the punks and somebody was saying like did punk you know did it all come from things like the rocky horror show and i'm like no it, it really did it was this punk in the northwest of england wasn't um uh, a king's road kind of postcard version of punk it was all the different subcultures um hanging out together you know you went to a punk gig in manchester and you can see it in old photos that it is, you know, a load of hippies, a lot of the West Indian community, um, all kinds of misfits all in one place at one time, you know. And uh, it was much more blurred and much more eclectic. And Man Manchester was a very eclectic musical city where um, your brother could, could be... A, my brother was a mod, so there was a lot of, like, uh, you know, black music coming 
coming through into the house and then my older brother was a, a university student so it, it was all uh, all about the prog and yes albums appeared and things so it, all these things lived side by side you know were you one of these kids who would uh, take things apart to see how they go and you know tinker with electronics or yeah i mean tape tape recorders all any musical technology back in those days usually came through um came through at Christmas and birthdays, you know, so there was significant purchases like a tape recorder. Everyone down the street had a tape recorder and sometimes we used to gather and put them all together and then record three tape recorders with with another tape recorder and you could get really interesting um, jams that way and then somebody told us how to turn the erase head off, you know, by covering it in silver paper. And then dads would then tinker and put a switch on your erase head so you could make, uh, you could turn it off and on and make loops and make cassette loops. And, and, and of course, the old um, tape recorder technology became something that you could then tinker with because previously to that, they were very proud pieces of equipment that you weren't allowed near, let alone to start jabbing biros into it and messing with the tape speed and things. So uh, all that became available to you. And then my, my dad had a background in electronics. He'd, he'd been in uh, the RAF uh, in working with radar in the 50s. So his shed was full of um, um, equipment. Like, for instance, my first guitar amplifier was a PA system from Mac Vitti's Biscuit Factory. And it had this huge glass map of the world on it with a with a with a shortwave radio receiver in it, and and then the speaker was like something from a Jim Carner or something like a massive magnet with a horn on it. Right. Well, this made an amazing sound for a, you put your electric violin through that, and it's a weapon, you know. So. Um, he would build me fuzz boxes from. We get practical electronics magazines were handed around at school. There was an electronics club at school where we were making circuits, and uh, we'd bring those home and get. I'd get my dad to do it. He was much quicker, and his soldering was way neater than mine. But um, that culture still goes on. I I think it's very much having a hey, a return to its heyday at the moment. Uh, so many musicians I know make electronics now. You know they they. They're handy with a soldering iron and um, this hobbyist culture of, of making electronic instruments is very much, uh, it existed back then, but it's way, way more uh, every day these days, you know. So it's interesting to um, connect those two eras up of uh, the character in electronic music um, uh, we once relied on the manufacturing companies for that, that character with synthesizers, but it's much more open to um, uh, individuals now, you know, where people are making personalised electronics. I mean, it, there was a whole movement a few years ago for tinkering with old Casio things and uh, rewiring them, wasn't it? And... Uh, you know, that, that thing's developed into something quite sophisticated now. And particularly with all the modular scene that, that goes on uh, around the world now, where it's odd with synthesizers now, because there is a lot of hobbyists. And yet, you know, I don't hear a lot of music from that sector that enters 
the social situations. You know, it's kind of lives in its own world. There was a um, a friend of mine puts out obscure records. Uh, Andy Votel, he's got a, re- a label called Finders Keepers, and he put a series of these cassettes out that that he'd found from Alaskan oil rig workers who got into modulars in the seventies because they had all this spare money. And one one of the guys was just a synth nut. And then they were all sat round, trapped in Alaska for a period of time. And they had a bar there that that this modular scene developed there kind of thing. And they made these tapes and they got out. And I love that, that social enforcement and connection to electronics there makes it a lot more interesting than the the wide-ranging kind of uh, guy in a bedroom by himself thing. You know, I think uh, there's this where music meets social situations is always very important to me. Right. Is that uh, like sort of wrapped up in the politics of uh, particularly the music at the time when you were getting started? Obviously, there's a lot of stuff going on politically. Is is there a kind of a political dimension to the, the musical story of Graham Massey? Yeah, I think, I think so, in that the anti-establishment, um, uh, bent in music when I started has always been a, a, a sort of bedrock of an attitude to, to making music. We never make, wanted to make music that was easy, you know, that fitted formats like verse, chorus, and middle eights. You know, we never dabbled with that. It was always started from. Um, an outward-looking music, as I say, growing up in the 70s with a sort of psychedelic bent, starting with the sort of UFO club in in, uh, in London uh, and the Pink Floyd thing. Which, and the, we, we really gravitated to this band called Gong, again, who were on Virgin Records, that, that, that idea of uh, uh, a band that had a bit of everything in it. Uh, it, it it had tape culture in it. They used a lot of uh, 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 collage. They used, uh, there was a lot of jazz in it. There was a lot of uh, synthesizers for the first time, but not in a, in quite an interesting way, in a very textural way. Uh, they were just a fascinating band, really. And, they, and I think their music has aged really well. Uh, out of that period of the of the nineteen sixties experimenters, the, the they did their back catalogue really stands up, and then there was bands like Faust out of Germany that that again were effectively music concrete, but in a fun way, not in a academic way. You know, in a way where where you could uh, um, sing along in a way. <laughs> you know, it's kind of our version of a. Uh, Everyone had that record because, again, that was a kind of 49 pence record that they put out called Faust Tapes. And, and when we formed bands in the 70s, everyone had it as a reference point because, um, because of the economics of that. How did that find its way into something like 808 State? Sort of, or chart toppers 808 State, if you like. What, yeah. What's the thread there? Okay, well, I, I like to see, like, well, once the, the rave scene started happening, and that, again, was a a point where technology changed. You know, that was really just as important as the, the cultural context. But the social uh, mix changed in the clubs. Uh, that was one of the things of the rave thing. It was about 
people from different backgrounds all meeting up up in in uh, you know the bigger clubs like a club like the Hacienda that wasn't about uh, it wasn't as tribal as other clubs that were around in previously leading up in, into the eighties where there was like gay clubs, black clubs, um, you know clubs for copping off kind of thing, uh, and. Uh, there was the barriers were coming down as a musician as well because we used to set up at the back of the hall when we were um, performing, largely be- again because of the technology. We needed a lot of wires, and you needed to be near the mixing desk because we, you know, we we didn't perform on the stage, and the stage broke down. You know, you see a Happy Mondays gig from back there. The stage was full of the audience, and the band was in there somewhere, and it didn't really matter. People were facing backwards and sideways, and the performance space broke down. And it's the same with eight, early 808 gigs. You couldn't tell who was on stage, you know, and you couldn't tell who the audience was. Mm-hmm. That, that, that was some kind of Mancunian socialism in, in action. It was like, right. that's what, what I think about when I go back to those early rave gigs, you know, and uh, warehouse parties, you know, where uh, you couldn't tell when a DJ came off and the live music began. You know, it's very blurred. People didn't care. You know, people didn't, you know, they, they were so engrossed in the community situation that the idea of uh, pop stars really went out the window. You know, so it was in- interesting when we started getting some success with 808s there because we really didn't know how to present ourselves. One minute we're doing these warehouse parties and, you know, sh- shuffling around with everyone else and the next minute we're doing something like the GMEX Centre in Manchester which is like a like a 10,000 people ex-railway station and you had to put on a show mm. and that was problematic it was really problematic for us to be on a stage and for an hour with essentially some boring technology you know because we were pumping out this music but it's not about check my skills you know it was it, you know so what do you do and we, we we struggled for many years to feel comfortable in a performing situation hmm. and you'd have to go on tv for instance you know uh, going on top of the pops and things uh where it's like how do we present this music and and if the bbc started having helpful suggestions you know of everyone clapping along to your rave record and Oh, it was awful. You know? <laughs> All this, this, this awkward situation. I remember the orb being on there and just playing chess, right, on top of the pops. You know, just as a, any any way to get around this presentation of electronic music. It took years to kind of find a way to make that uh, audience, yeah, you know, that audience uh, band thing comfortable again. So what was the point at which you kind of thought, right, this is, this is clearly my life. This is not just something that I'm, I'm doing uh, because I don't have a, a different job. This is my job. This is my career. And this is, what I'm, this is what I am now. Was there a point at which you sort of clicked to that? Yeah. Well, I'd just like to say there was a huge period where, where it wasn't like that. And so you always thought when when we did get uh, like signed up by a record company you didn't know how long that would last so there's there's never been a point of the lack of anxiety of being a musician and there's a lot of anxiety that goes with being a musician and how you're going to make it through the years you know and as you get older you just think 
you know, there really is no alternative. I have to, I'm a lifer. I have to do it. It's, um, it makes you into a weird person, I think, you know, and like all, all the musicians I know, um, they have a kindness within the community of, of, uh, of, of musicians because they know what it takes to be in that position. Um, but I would say when we did get um, the backing of a record company and the cash that went with it, you know, the cash advance, and nobody explained advances to us and how much would be taken out and how to manage money. And we were a chaotic bunch, you know, from different backgrounds mm. and how to, how to be a band and a business. Being a band is one thing. Being a business is another. And, and that we had made some terrible mistakes as everyone does with that. Mm. Um, but that confidence of somebody just going like, go for it, you know, uh, with cash, which doesn't exist anymore. You, I mean, it's, I, I mean, I, I can imagine most bands only last a couple of years these, these, these days, you know, they'll have a crack at it. And if it doesn't work, they'll let it drop kind of thing. Whereas back then you could maybe keep that going for like five or eight years based on publishing deals and, you know, bits of dragging, convincing people that you were worth it kind of thing. Right. If you were 18 now, yeah, what would you be doing? Well, you'd, get, you'd make music. You would value it in a different way. Yeah, you, would, you wouldn't put the same ambition on music. It would be part of your life. And it would maybe connect up some of your friends. Well, I'm, as I'm saying this now, that's how music was before when I was growing up, really. It was about, music was very colloquial. You know, Manchester bands played to Manchester bands and compared themselves to Manchester bands. Right. They rarely got out of town. If they got to London, that was like some major, you know, excitement, you know. And... Uh, but then um, if you got abroad, that was crazy, you know. If you, I mean, so we always got to Holland and Belgium and places like that. It were very liberal and uh, encouraging and had um, governments that gave out grants. You know, this was right. very exciting. This is terribly exciting uh, that we got to go and uh, play abroad, you know. But um, it was just terribly colloquial, but we were lucky to have people like Factory Records in our town. You know, we came from a town where punk uh, had uh, been. There were some role models within our town. You know, for instance, uh, New Hormones Records was the first record company I got involved with, who did Spiral Scratch by the Buzzcocks, mm -hmm. and uh, they gave us enough money to record side one of an album. Then they ran out of money, and then. Uh, about two years later, they gave us money to do side two of an album, and and then they didn't have enough money to make the record, so we sold it to another record company, and that so it, like an album took three years to, you know, that wasn't the punk ideal, right? You've become quite prolific now, though, I guess. You, I mean, working on a lot of projects. Yeah, um, yeah. I was. I feel uh, that you know, being in a band for thirty years comes with some baggage and therefore that baggage sometimes gets in the way of 
uh, how you make music, you know, just that having a complete openness to the way you make music. Um, so I have a number of um, projects, almost like a sort of portfolio of projects in order to um, be able to sort of manoeuvre around uh, the music I really want to make, you know. So I make music for films, which is <clears throat> a, a completely different discipline as far as I'm concerned to creative music making. I also thought it would be a creative space to um, uh, expand your music making imagination. <clears throat> but it's quite constrained. and it, But constrained is good. I find, you know, it's kind of like the the one of the issues for modern electronic musicians is the Chinese menu of uh, logic and all that kind of thing. Now, you know, it's um, you, so many options to go with music making on your computer in front of you can really shut shut you down. It's sometimes to go down to a little bit of kit and and. Uh, you know, just a time constraint or a set of rules. Um, I, I I really thrive off that sometimes. You know, just just to change. It's just too many options sometimes with modern music making that all all these other um, platforms become interesting again. Yeah, I guess you've got a, a rack of you know lots of synths and lots of gear and that sort of stuff. Do you sort of ever restrict yourself to uh, a few bits and pieces or? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, for a while I've had this huge man, man shed in the old Granada TV uh, studios where I've, for the first time in my life I've been able to lay out everything I have uh, in terms of uh, all the equipment I've hoarded over the years. And <clears throat> I kind of got that out of my system because it made me realise how little of it I use. Right. You know, and, ha and how uh, th there's just a, like a romantic idea about having every kind of synthesizer um you know you, it's not how we started out and some of the best music was done with very primitive and limited equipment uh, so yeah there's a discipline to to getting to know certain pieces of equipment inside out um I, I don't think i could be one of those modular people for instance you know what i mean i think that did, i'd just go up some um some alleyway uh and and, and get trapped by the technology. Sometimes the technology needs to be about <clears throat> back to basics. You really realise this when you start doing gigs, when you're under gig circumstances, what synthesizers work in in in, uh, in field conditions. Yeah. Like something like something like a, an old Moog just works perfectly in those conditions. It cuts through. It's always focused. It's just you can look at the panel and know exactly where you are with the sound mm. in an instant. It's, it's a beautiful instrument, like the old Mini Moog, for instance. And uh, <clears throat> then we went through a period of everything, what we used to call painting through the letterbox, which is like, you know, that the way you had little LED screens and you had to go through menus and, they were just useless live, you know, for do, for being spontaneous. You could maybe pick a preset and go with that. But um, but I think instrument manufacturers are beginning to feed back into artists now mm -hmm. in an interesting way. You know, we've been working with uh, the Roland people uh, for a number of years now. And they were an example of a company that, that used to uh, be all about, we won't look at the past. 
whereas some of their best instruments were the ones they made by accident. Right. And and um, uh, they would refuse to revisit some of their great successes hmm. uh, in favour of just uh, the engineers just moving it on. But what they weren't taking into account is how musicians use equipment <clears throat> and uh, the different genres of music that have spun off their equipment. Right. You know, it took a while for that to feed back. And now you have uh, um, the people that make the Roland Aero equipment uh, have regular feedback sessions with musicians. And and it's great to see so many beginners with this equipment, you know, mm. going out there and being able to make spontaneous electronic music with something that's under £500. You know, it's become, um, you know, the electric guitar of its day. Do you think that some of these uh, electronic music uh, manufacturing companies, like the, the, the instrument makers, have an awareness of the heritage uh, in the same way that guitar manufacturers might? They do now, but it's taken years. You know, you could go back 10 mm. years and they wouldn't have that. Right. Particular people did. I remember when we first went, 808 State first visited Tokyo, we were met by a delegation from Roland mm-hmm. and presented with a, a boss watch um and some socks and and this this cassette that they made in their lunch hour some of the engineers had made in the lunch hour of cover versions of some of our tunes that was that was so sweet kind of thing but it was it was not the 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 executives it wasn't the executives that did that it was the 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 workers that that had come you know and that that was right, fantastic awesome yeah but um yeah it's much much more um the, there's a synthesis between the engineers and the musicians, and there's more of a community talking about it. Right, but you're not just an electronic musician, though. It's it's uh, it's part of your palette. But you're often seen with a wind instrument, for instance. Yeah, I mean, it's all. Uh, yeah, I'm not an electronic music purist, and it's funny how many people are. You know, particularly when you're a band like Eight Two Eight State, that's seen as uh, one of the synthesizer bands people get really upset when they get the guitar out, you know, or they get really upset with the saxophone and things, you know, it's like, they just can't compute it. It's like, no, it doesn't belong there. And it, but to me, um, yeah, as I say, I, I see this um, long line back to, uh, you know, underground creative music that, that has always had those things, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't a big deal for me to put saxophone on Pacific State, for instance. I mean, I didn't play the saxophone when we made that record. Uh, but I was doing another project the night before uh, where the saxophone, saxophone player had left the saxophone in the studio. But that was electronic as well. And we it was electronic with brass on it. It was, more, it was like kind of like a sort of a, almost like a fella cootie record with 909 drum machines that we were doing the night before. Obviously, hugely unsuccessful. But all those um, experiments of trying to fit um, genres together that we were doing back then, you know, some of it stuck, loads of it didn't. Well, we we really liked, at that point in time, people like Adrian Sherwood and uh, the Onya Sound label that were using uh, an electronic format, but with highly skilled musicians from the Sugar Hill Gang, you know, so like Doug Wimbush and Skip MacDonald, who were obviously like musoey. Yeah. Well, you stick that with the drum machine stuff and you, you're getting a real, uh, yeah, you know, it's just exciting records we were making back then. And we were inspired by that. 
And then uh, we were also inspired by the fact that they used to take that format and just do it as a sound system. So they'd turn up in Manchester and Gary Clayle would set up in the middle of a club, not on stage again. Yeah. Uh, as in the format of a reggae sound system, I guess, you know, that he would, he, he'd come from, uh, you know, Bristol and the reggae sound systems and that's the way they did it. And they played stuff off cassette, yep, you know, yep. that was, it wasn't Dex. It was like, I've made this. I'm not going to get an acetate. I've got a cassette. So he just had a bank of cassette players. And this was really inspiring to us. That's how we set up originally as 808 State around the mixing desk um, with some, you know, we made the PA system quadraphonic by just adding two more speakers to it. And, and yeah, it, was a, it, it probably sounded dreadful, but um, socially it was, it was a dance. You know, in 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 the style of a you know in the style of a blues, it wasn't a performance. You know, it was a it was a, it was a whole night of stuff. You know, and it wasn't like you know a beginning, middle, and end. It was like it just splurged together. You know? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole range of influences obviously going around. I mean, the on you sound thing is interesting to me because I was a on you sound collector. That's like one of the oh right oh yeah one, yeah. one of the big things for me in the sort of late eighties, early nineties. But but going through to today, but also I mean you you sort of touch on Sun Ra, yeah. and then you're suddenly working with, with uh, pop stars. You know, you're sort of working with Bjork and you're sort of associated with John Hassel at one end and Quincy Jones on the other. You know, how do you sort of tie those threads together or is it just sort of curiosity? It was that period of where the remix was the big thing amongst uh, major record labels. Um, everyone knew that this format of getting things into clubs where, where the culture was really moving in clubs and significant records could be thrown up out the blue overnight from a club situation mm. was really interesting to major major labels. So, you know, how can we get um, this artist who we don't quite know what to do with, you know, if we can get like some A&R guy or it's just like, oh, get it, get it remixed by this guy I know kind of thing. It's like he was doing his job somehow, you know, of plugging these patch leads into the culture. So, you know, mm -hmm. it was great for us because like every every week, I mean, I, I mean, I, I balk at the, at the amount of remixes you must have turned down back then, you know. I mean, I come across cassettes in the cellar of things of like, you know, shame and move any mountain, and I probably just went, oh, too busy, or whatever, threw it over my shoulder, you know. And uh, But back then, you know, when you say working with pop stars, Bjork wasn't really a pop star, was she? I don't know. Sugar Cubes, yeah, I mean, it's kind of... They had that uh, birthday was known. They were seen as like indie, indie darlings at that point in time. And um, mm -hmm. uh, when when we met Bjork and she arrived, she, she wanted to do um, an electronic formatted thing. And uh, she she want, uh, essentially wanted beats put into her music because she is such a musician. Hmm. And um, but all the music on the cassette that she played as was a brass band quartet from like her college mates, you know. So it was like trombone and trumpet, and it was things like anchor song and aeroplane, and you had to have a huge imagination to to then think how that would play out as electronic pop. Because mm -hmm. even then, when you listen to that album, it, it's pretty strange. There's like a saxophone quartet on it. You know, one of the first sessions I worked on, it was Oliver Lake, who was like uh, one of the members of the World Saxophone Quartet, who were like very esoteric, you know, black saxophone quartet from New York. Mm -hmm. And, uh, 
there was a whole jazz culture that walked into the room of like you know um respect and things that had to be and it wasn't pop no, no, nothing was pop you know one little indian with the biggest punks on the planet you know flux of pink indians that Derek, who ran the label yeah they're, they're on par with crass you know they yeah so i was comfortable on all these levels of like loved all the jazz loved all the punk stuff mm-hmm. you know and we singing off the same hymn sheet she'd she'd lived that life too of doing utter not chaotic nonsense on stage you look back at some of her early bands you know and it's it there's it, complete parallels with what we were doing you know of just making that din and and then at a later point in life organizing that din but with a very informed um record collection yeah uh, so it's it's really obvious why we want you to be at music tech fest what do you get out of it the village green aspect of music tech fest is incredibly important because people have assumptions about who everyone is, you know, before they meet up somewhere, you know, uh, be it electronic musicians or people from the, you know, for instance, me from the rave thing, you know, people are perhaps a bit kind of suspicious of, of it, whether it's, uh, you know, true music or not, or there's a lot of mu- music man- instrument manufacturers all meeting up there. So when... I, I can only go off the experiences that I've had at Music Tech Fest, which is usually even driving from the airport in a taxi with somebody you've just met who's going to Music Tech Fest. There, all these Venn diagrams start intersecting immediately, and uh, you find you have, uh, you find out what you've got in common, you find out your common passions, and uh, there's, there's always something that connects between. The, all the people at Music Tech Fest, because they're all got an exploratory mind. You know, they're all looking to to take ideas forward. And uh, so it's easy to have conversations there. You know, you you know you're there to to have that attitude and openness occurs immediately. Mm. It, it's it's uh, it's part of the brief really, is that um you know, you leave, you leave your, you leave stuff at the door, and you you start listening, you start tuning in, and you you know that time is not to be wasted there because there's all this information coming at you. So um, I'm quite happy to sort of sit and listen to the talks until my bum goes numb. You know, about eight hours into this thing, and you you really you know, there's been times where it's like, right, I should I should really go, you know, go and get something to eat now, kind of thing. But you just you're just there fixed as all this information is happening. You don't want to miss anything. And then all the great stuff happens uh, in the, in the social space of, of afterwards at the hotel, at the breakfast, the breakfasts are amazing. You meet all these, these people uh, and, and they are able to hook people up together. You know, there's, 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 it's brilliant. Like, oh, you met. You need to talk to this guy over here, kind of thing. And that kind of uh, social exchange is, is is physically in the air, you know, where um, ideas are just um, people's ideas are fed uh, and and uh, bolstered by uh, the energy of uh, a collection of uh, inventors. Uh, well, they're, 
they're not just musicians. That's the thing I like about it as well. You know what I mean? I even as a musician, there you almost you you kind of feel like you should develop all these other skills that that are that are in evidence there because it's about tooling up for the future. You know, it, it's about going. Oh, if I had that guy on my team, uh, you know, and and this knowledge. Everything would move forwards. I could help them. They could help me and everything could move forward. And it was, I was saying about it's the most sort of perfect version of the European community at times when I've been a lot of the ones I've been to have been in European places. Um, I know you've done them all over the world, but you just get a sense of this global community that's interested in uh you know, a better version of the future yeah, in terms of not just politically, but um, culturally all-rounders. All that, that it's just one of the, it's just a very positive experience, particularly when we're in this sort of weird Brexit kind of England at the moment. And there, I wish I could take um, people over and convert them with just one weekend at a music tech fest. And the word music tech fest is slightly misleading sometimes because it is not just about music. It's about bigger ideas than that. You know, it's about um, future communities and the way the world might work. Um, stuff you used to read about when, you know, the global village idea that I grew up with in the 60s is, you know, there should be some big geodesic dome that we sit under or something. We actually brought a couple of geodesic domes to MTF in Stockholm and set them up as, as little playgrounds. But, uh, yeah, it's a good start. Actually, uh, I ran into uh, Leon the other night who was doing a dome thing, yeah. uh, who I met at Music Tech Fest, and we were out doing, doing gigs. And the thing is, you, you attend these things and then you bump into them in real life all the time. For instance, Jason Singh, who lives 500 yards from where I live, I've never really spoke to him until I met him in northern Sweden somewhere. And now we're doing, uh, you know, music collaborations a lot more. Fantastic. Because, because of that, because of being isolated in some place and, uh, you know, surrounded by that atmosphere. Amazing, amazing. You mentioned uh, when we spoke earlier about uh, sort of being surprised by some of the opinions coming off the stage. Um, do you want to just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it, I mean it's, it's great... One of the aspects of Music Tech Fest that is surprising is is you, you get sort of the, the head honchos of some of these sort of uh, technology companies who are in in my head are these sort of distant figures who are all dealing with the finance of things, but how passionate they are actually about the things that they make and how now they see the world as it is, which is, uh, you know, with plugins, no... This, this idea that people buy them is, is uh, you know, it's not the way people first encounter plugins. You know, they 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 get them from other people. They they see them on other people's doors. There's a culture of word of mouth about plugins and uh, and and which ones stick, which ones are useful, which ones fail. You know, there's a whole culture of um, technology that takes time to play out. And, and seeing the uh, heads of those companies, understanding that they have to communicate with each other. It's not about rivalries. I mean, they're obviously 
were rivalries at times, but that has to break down now, you know, because people have to accept that, you know, people are multi-formatting their, their computers. You know, it's no, no one is going to be able to dominate something as wide as music technology. It's about being able to make things that complement each other as well, you know, so that, that becomes a community, a community of inventors. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it also builds a sort of respect for, you know, if you get to meet the people, that you understand there is a people game, you know, and it is um, uh, years of research and um, skills that go into to moving this thing slowly forward. T- tell me about the sort of the journey that you're on. You, you're sort of, I guess, at a mature stage of, of music making. You've kind of done a lot. You've laid a lot of groundwork. You've kind of, I guess, settled on a way of doing things. How does the sort of, you know, being, I guess, a grown-up now change your approach to music making? Is it is it different for you? At- yeah, I guess a lot of the ambitions have changed in, in, in the music making. And the, the biggest successes, when I look back on it, are, are points when you can get uh, your music uncompromised into the general community. I always think that some of the great success of what we did with 808 State was to, to not compromise the music, but get it to the general public and be surprised that the general public aren't as uh, narrow-minded as people led us to believe. You know, if, you know people will respond to... to to any kind of music if you can get it in front of them. And uh, breaking down media channels as, as, as uh, has been happening in recent years. You know, I think radio is in a really interesting place now with, without um, you know, the established radio channels and a lot of digital radio where you can uh, have to have really strong curation uh, if you can trust uh, the people's, people's taste you can move quickly through and get access to great music. I think that's really exciting in recent years that that radio has become this open ground. When we were back in the rave days, the radio was incredibly important to us. We had an 808 State radio programme that took uh, American import dance music through the record shop that we had, Eastern Block, and put it directly out into the community. Um, And that changed the, the... the musical landscape where we lived you know people used to record it on cassette and exchange the cassettes and everything moved quickly and and that's when change could have could happen and that's happening again you know the equivalent of a you know radio is just insanely important today and people might have written it off but it's not yeah Um, well you're doing it now yourself right? yeah we we have various programs just done one on mts uh, last weekend like a two-hour space race special with a DJ called Kelvin Brown. That that's still up on Mixcloud, and uh, do another one called Jazz Cruise Lifeboat Assembly, which essentially is a jazz show. But again, jazz is one of those words that's too got too much baggage. Well, you know, if you listen to it, it's just about music we're into at the moment, and that can be really electronic. It can be uh, stuff that's just been cooked up ten minutes ago down the corridor. It's got. Uh, a real live uh, what's happening now quality to it it's not about uh, but we'll throw in lots of things uh, you know classic stuff and it's just about good music you know that's moving move pushing all that together in one one space that's that's important 
So as I was saying, you know, uh, I'm just interested in doing projects that that are expanding an audience, really. You know, trying to build an audience in in the digital age is difficult when you have so many things to. You don't want to stay in one place. It would be easy for me to be a rave musician and just tread that path. But I didn't come from there, and I don't want to stay there. You know, instead, like. I mean, we're out touring at the moment, uh, playing gigs, and you know, I understand uh, the the uh, structure of how to make a crowd go for it, you know. But you want to mess with that, and we do mess with it, and you know, people get a better reward out of it when they're surprised, and I think we get a lot of good feedback because people we do the unexpected and new new there's a lot of new music in there, you know that's trying to move it forward a bit, you know, and not just be a nostalgic thing. Uh, it's very important to me, you know, to um, to be free as a musician to try things out. You know? It's quite hard to pinpoint what a great and messy piece of music sounds like, for instance. Yeah, exactly. I don't I don't hold well together on Spotify, for instance. All my music's scattered under different pseudo names. There's no one thing that will bring that together. There's not an algorithm for it for, that will do that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm a really suspicious of algorithms. I really, you know, and and it's interesting those conversations at MTF about algorithms and the way uh, music will go. Oh, if you like this, you will like that. It's just a, a conf- I'm so against that. But that's the place where you can have that conversation mm. and almost come up with something that is the opposite of that. There, there might be developments in the technology that send that in the opposite direction. And that that would be really interesting, you know. Of just, you know, just uh, that thing you used to get when you got into albums and you read the names on the back and you followed those names of musicians. That algorithm from from my teenage years, uh, I want a version of that, yeah. really, you know, yeah. where, where it's about pe- people version of it. and. Absolutely, yeah. or, the, or the algorithm of the grumpy guy in the record shop saying y- your music taste is shit. You should be listening to this instead. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and making recommendations on this. God, our, our, the record shop where we were born, Eastern Block, and they had such a reputation for that that people used to go in there quaking. You know, <laughs> uh, but but it was from a good place because that guy really was Evan Martin Price. He was in evangelical about getting the good music across. And he would like literally be giving copies if there was a great record. He'd be giving people copies of it. You know, he was like, you know, like a preacher. Wow. Well, uh, people used to come out of there, you know, having, uh, you know, needing tranquilizers at the end of it. You know? So, yeah, those things are missing. You know? Fantastic. Well, maybe we're being, romant- we're being romantic about it, but you know what I mean? But it's great. Music Tech Fest is discussion. It is the exchange of these ideas and people that are going in with an idea could go in with an idea and that idea might be complete change by the time they come out of there, you know, because mm. they're, they're dealing with such a mix of disciplines and such a mix of people that, that it really works for me. You know, I've come, I come out of there inspired. Just amazing. So great to have Graham as part of the MTF community and you will no doubt catch him at MTFs to come. But that is the MTF podcast and that's us for 2018. Have a fantastic new year and we'll catch you next week as usual with something extra special from the MTF Trackathon and some really big news for MTF 2019. Until then, if you can think of anyone you know who might find this of interest, please do send them a link. Cheers and Happy New Year. (laughs) 